Welcome to PwC's Accounting and Reporting podcast series. Our mission is to inform and educate accountants and other stakeholders on today's most important accounting issues. I'm Heather Horn, a partner in PwC's national office, and I'll be your host today. For today's episode, I'm happy to welcome back to the studio, Pat Durbin, the leader of the Revenue and Liabilities team in PwC's national office. We've had some recent episodes where we've gone back to the basics and talked about some of our older accounting standards. But today, Pat and I are going to go way back to the basics and we're gonna be talking about one of our foundational accounting standards, FAS 5, Accounting for Lost Contingencies. Pat will take us through the impact FAS 5 has had on other areas of GAAP, and then we'll also go through some key reminders as well as the judgments involved. I'm looking forward to a great discussion today. Okay, so welcome back, Pat. Thanks for joining us today. Uh, today we're going to be talking about accounting for contingencies. I'm very excited about this. We've done a number of recent episodes that are looking back at some of our older standards, but I think you're going to top them all yeah. with talking about FAST 5. Um, so before we even get into contingencies or anything else, maybe can you just give us a quick background on FAST 5? So how old is it, I guess, would be yeah. my first question. Yeah, I mean, it's crazy in this day and age. I mean, this one goes way back. I mean, it uh, was originally FAST 5, as you alluded to, um, which was issued originally in 1975. And really has kind of withstood the test of time um, without that much change. I mean, there was a uh, exploration of a project maybe to revisit it here uh, 10 years ago or so, but that was sort of tabled and um, here we are, we carry on with uh, what we call today ASC 450 on contingencies, but it's basically the old FAS 5 model for some of our older listeners out there. Yes, I was thinking when you said that, that many of our listeners were probably not born when this was <laughs> issued. Um, but I do think most people probably know the, the FAS 5 um, terminology. And I think one thing that was interesting when we were preparing for this that you mentioned is just the fact that it's so foundational, not just for contingencies, but for a lot of other parts of GAP too. And I think we'll get into that a little, right? Yeah, I mean, and we'll, we'll come back to the concept of probable, but that's a concept that's near and dear to every accountant's heart. And FAS 5 is really where sort of the working definition of probable was really first articulated. Yep, good. Well, let's jump into it then. So then why don't we start, before we even get into our topics for today, um, just to give sort of the overview, what do we even mean when we say contingencies? Yeah, so I mean, obviously there's sort of a plain English version of it. I mean, the, the literature defines a contingency as an existing condition, situation, or set of circumstances involving uncertainty as to possible gain, which would be a gain contingency, or possible loss, which would be a loss contingency, to an entity that will ultimately be resolved when one or more future events occur or fail to occur. That's the formal definition. So some typical examples you might see in practice would be legal contingencies, contract claims, commercial disputes, product liability or personal injury claims. All of those would be typical contingencies. You might also see it in the context of property damage, environmental remediation, basically any self-insured risk where the entity has, has risk for its activities will give rise to a contingency potentially. Yeah, I think contingencies are one thing probably impacts everyone. I, some of our other topics, you know, it depends on what your company does or your industry, et cetera. But I think unfortunately, or maybe fortunately, if it's a gain contingency, having things unsettled at the balance sheet date, I think is 
something someone everyone deals with. So Life is full of uncertainty. <laughs> there you go. Thank you. So then why don't maybe again before we jump into things, when we talk about Fast Five or the contingency model, I know there's different outcomes and different um, recognition, presentation, and disclosure requirements depending on sort of where you are in the model. So can you set the framework for us? Yeah, and I, I sort of like to think of it maybe along a continuum. So obviously anything can happen, right? But there has to be some possibility before it really concerns us generally from a financial reporting standpoint. So we start out with basically the notion that maybe there is an existing uncertainty that you're aware of but the possibility of a loss from it is remote. Basically, let's call it less than five to 10%, somewhere in that category, very, very unlikely. Well, the standard acknowledges that you could have that contingency that you may be aware of, but it doesn't require you to do any accounting for it. You don't have to disclose it, you don't have to accrue it, because really it's, it's just too far out there. The next category you might have is a contingency where a loss is reasonably possible. So think of that somewhere obviously north of remote but not yet up to the probable threshold. In that case then you'd have an obligation to disclose that contingency in the financial statements, provide some additional commentary about it, but you wouldn't have to make any accounting entry. You wouldn't have to accrue a loss. And then the third category is when you have a loss that's now probable. Um, and we'll come back to what that means, but it, if you get to that point, then you have to not only disclose the contingency, but you also typically have to make an accrual if it's reasonably estimable, but we'll talk some more about we'll that We'll get into too. that. Yeah. Okay, so then why don't we actually jump into our first topic, which would be when you have a contingency, but you think it's remote, and I'll use your percentages, say that five to 10% might happen, yep. but you don't even think it's reasonably possible. So maybe give some examples and also talk about situations that you would have that you would neither accrue nor disclose a matter. Yeah, and I, I think what you can think of here potentially is um, some sort of unasserted claim or potential assessment that, again, the theoretical possibility exists. Uh, maybe you're even aware that there was some potential damage, harm, injury, whatever you want to call it. but the likelihood of anyone pursuing a claim, asserting a claim, is really, really low. So that would be an example of sort of a remote loss contingency. I mean, you could sort of imagine, well, there's like no loss contingency, well, obviously nothing to do, and then you have sort of that next step of, well, there's there's something there that's could, you know, happen. could happen, but it's there's no real probability at this point. So you'd call that a remote contingency, and you could also have a layer that says, well, even if someone were to assert that claim, the likelihood of an unfavorable outcome is remote because there's just no real causal relationship, perhaps, between my actions and the injury that was caused or something. So you could have that scenario as well, which we would still categorize as remote, and you wouldn't need to disclose that either. So you referenced specifically this terminology, unasserted claim. Can yep. you explain that a little bit more for people who may not use the terminology? Yeah, so an unasserted claim is one that obviously has not been asserted yet, maybe because the potential claimant isn't even aware of the, the injury yet. Perhaps it was property damage, they're not yet aware of it. Or they may not be aware that there is a potential cause of action uh, for the claim. A good example might be personal injury where it's clear that someone was injured, but 
really the cause of that injury is unknown. So it might not be obvious whether there is a claim to pursue or against whom you might pursue it. So that's what we mean by an unasserted claim. So I think it's interesting when you're speaking, you know, we talk about the fact there's sort of nothing to do. So you don't have to accrue and you don't have to disclose. But you probably still have to document, right? So if you're aware of these unasserted claims or, you know, you have your regular process mm -hmm. to go through and, and assess your contingencies, you'd want to be documenting that you this is out there, but you think it's remote because things could change in the future, right? Yeah, and I think what you typically see in practice is most companies are going to be self-insured to some extent for a lot of, I'll call it sort of day-to-day um, -day type incidents that might occur. They usually have some process where those are reported. And one of the tangential areas you might get into here is what we refer to as some sort of accrual for self-insurance risk or the incurred but not reported liabilities, IBNR, right. which is sort of a view that, well, there's a whole pool of potential unasserted claims out there, and I have enough experience and history to know that there's some potential that those will be asserted and some potential that those will manifest themselves in, in damages that I might be liable for. So that's, that's sort of the process point around it. So there would be some of the claims that would fall into that pool that would probably individually be remote, but sometimes you look at these on sort of a portfolio basis and put them into this IBNR accrual for self-insured risk. So I think that's a good lead-in then to the, the next case, which is where we have something that's reasonably possible. And so, you know, big picture from a AST 450 or FAS5 perspective, we'd say, okay, disclose, but don't accrue. So then can you give us some examples of those types of situations? Yeah, obviously this is one that now presumably has been asserted. You've evaluated it as the um, you know, person who's being claimed against and decided, okay, there's a potential that I could have some exposure here. You know, you may not be in any way admitting that you are liable, but recognizing the uncertainties, the different points of view that adverse parties can take, you may have some exposure but you also believe you have some pretty strong defenses perhaps, so you evaluate it and conclude that the loss is only reasonably possible. Well, and obviously there's a materiality overlay to all of this, but certainly if it's an individually significant claim, it's been asserted, you have some facts around it, the disclosure requirement is that you provide the reader some information about the nature of that claim. Presumably you could talk about what you believe to be your defenses, but you would also need to provide a potential range of the estimate of the loss, too, to the extent known. Now, in many cases, you might assert that that range is not, not yet known or not yet knowable, but you still believe there's a potential out there and you want to make the reader the financial statements aware. So then uh, two follow-up questions to that. I think the first one is you mentioned maybe a case where a claim has been asserted, but you also could have a situation, right, where the claim hasn't been asserted, but due to the nature of the claim, you think it's likely Highly that likely would happen. Highly likely or likely that yeah. it will be asserted. Yes, no, that's a fair point. Okay. You're right. It doesn't just have to be an asserted claim. It's one that's sort of past that threshold of likelihood of assertion as well. So then, Pat, my second question, and I think there might be some follow-ons, but I'm sure you get this question. So I'm a company. I have a claim or I have a situation. I know it's reasonably possible, so I need to disclose, but I don't want to give away information. So how do we sort of balance the need to comply with FAS5 with the fact that in 
as a defense, I don't want to share maybe what I think the range of loss is, et cetera. Yeah, this is the age-old uh, tension, obviously, for anybody preparing financial statements, certainly for auditors and having discussions with their, their clients, is how do you balance the company's legitimate desire not to prejudice their position in, in an adversarial situation with the needs, though, of the users of the financial statements to have information about contingencies. Um, so it's, I would say, facts and circumstances specific, but there is no, let's call it, safe harbor to get out of the disclosure by asserting that it would somehow be prejudicial to your um, case in, in litigation. We do sometimes those see cases like maybe you could group similar litigation, things like is that? Yeah, I mean, th there are various ways I think you can provide the reader the financial statements sufficient information without perhaps getting overly specific about a particular case or claim. Obviously, in some cases, it's very difficult because the, the claim is individually unique and of a large magnitude. but. Um, it's it's a challenging area, I would say. Right, and I guess that then leads to then sort of the follow-on, which is I know this is something where the SEC staff spends a lot of focus, and I think that partly goes back to my original point in the last topic, that you need to keep track of things even if you think at this point they're remote, because you have to be really cautious that you don't want the first time that people are hearing about it to be when it's like large material and being reported. So do you have any no, that That's a really that? good point and definitely that's been an area where um, companies have gotten comments from the SEC in the past if they had a either a material loss accrual or a disclosure of a material loss possibility and sort of the first time anybody's hearing about it is like in, in that quarter. You know, the idea is that these things usually have some evolution um, they develop over time, and so the important point is that you're forewarning or foreshadowing with those disclosures of the possibility of a material loss accrual. Yep, very helpful. Okay, so then why don't we go to our last type of loss contingency. Uh, I think these are the ones people often focus the most on, mm -hmm. and that would be when it's probable. So now I have to accrue and I have to disclose. Uh, so first of all, maybe before we even get into it, what do we mean when we say probable? Yeah, so as I alluded to, you know, this is sort of the classic accountant's definition of probable. Um, the official description is the future event is likely to occur. That's the, the words. There is no quantitative threshold in those words. Mm -hmm. I would say, though, in practice, we've generally coalesced around approximately a 75% likelihood as being equivalent to probable. Again, can you sort of prove that in any individual circumstance? No, but that sort of gives you a, a steer as to the likelihood. It's certainly north of what we would call more likely than not and something you know well less than virtually certain, but pretty good chance it's, it's going to happen. And so. that's where I think qualitative factors could go in as well, right? Yeah. That you kind of consider both that this is not a, okay, well, I'm 70% and, you know, but there's qualitative factors. This is, that's sort of a rule of thumb, but you really need to look at, okay, is a reasonable person going to think that this is probable right. occurring? And I think when you get to that stage too, it's probable of a loss doesn't have to be probable of the maximum amount of loss, it's just probable of a loss. So that's your first step in the recognition threshold. The next step is that you actually have to have an ability to reasonably estimate the loss. So there's really two conditions for accrual. It's probable and reasonably estimable. 
And there are some that may be subject to still such significant uncertainty that you can't make a reasonable estimate. I would say that becomes a little bit higher bar, you know, once you're in the probable realm, but it's not unheard of. And then the other challenge you have is that you may not have a specific point estimate, but you may have a range. And so the standard provides some allowance for, well, if you have a range, then you should probably pick your best estimate in the range. If you don't have a best estimate in the range, you would go to the low end of the range. And just one point of caution on that is a range is a range between some non-zero number and some other number. So zero can't be the low end of the range, basically. So right, you can't sort you of avoid accruing by saying zero is the low end of the range. Right, because you already said some amount of loss is probable. Yes. And then obviously I think going with that would be, you're not talking about a de minimis <laughs> amount in that right, case then. Right. Okay, and then I guess, Pat, if you are in this situation where it's a range, then you also are disclosing that amount, right? You would disclose Correct. what's accrued and then the what the potential well. range yep. of loss is. Yep. Okay, so then why don't we move on to something that's perhaps more pleasant for our listeners to think about, which would be gain contingencies. Yep. So what's different about the gain contingency model? Yeah, well, it's uh, actually quite a bit different, and it's good that you bring it up because obviously the definition of contingency sort of included both. What we just spent the last several minutes talking about were the loss contingencies. Gain contingencies are very different. Yes, they are acknowledged as something that, that could be out there, but there's a definite bias in the standard that says we don't want you to recognize a gain from a contingency until it's essentially settled, until it's realized or realizable as are the words in the standard. And I would say we, we generally interpret that to mean that sort of you have the cash in hand or receipt is imminent. It can't just be, it's certainly not probable. It's certainly a much higher threshold than probable, I guess would be the, the short so, way to describe it. Maybe back to virtually certain, which you referenced yeah. um, as being a higher threshold yeah. than probable. So then, Pat, I know a lot of issues come up with gain contingencies and timing of the financial statements. And we didn't actually get into this too much with loss contingencies, mm -hmm. but maybe we should have. So let's talk briefly about subsequent events, yeah. starting with gain contingencies, yeah. since that's where we are. So now I have a claim, and I'm victorious, and after the balance sheet date, do I get to recognize it? At, but I haven't reported yet, so can I recognize it? Yeah, so you kind of have to go back into the subsequent events guidance, which sort of talks about is the event something that gives you confirming information about conditions that existed at the balance sheet date, or is it a function of something that happened after the balance sheet date? If it's in that first category, you would say, well, that's a recognizable subsequent event, or an adjusting subsequent event, I would adjust the balance sheet for it. The second category, I wouldn't change the balance sheet, I would just disclose it. I would say there's a there's some guidance also that suggests when it's a sort of a questionable area, if it's a loss and you're not sure, you would probably push that back to the balance sheet. And if it's a gain, you'd probably recognize that in the period, the post balance sheet period. You'd still have disclosure, but you wouldn't push it back to the to the balance sheet. Obviously, it's going to depend on facts and circumstances, but I would say in a lot of cases, just given the uncertainties that underlie a gain contingency and sort of this threshold for recognition, you'd have to be satisfied that that threshold for recognition was really in existence at the balance sheet date. You just were not aware of it. So I would say in most cases, a gain contingency is going to end up as a post-balance sheet recognition event rather than a, an event we would push back to the balance sheet. Okay, helpful. And then I think you addressed this, but 
in comparison, a loss contingency, unless the event clearly occurred, um, and for example, like an earthquake after the balance sheet date or something like that, then you would typically push back if you get more information after the balance sheet date. Again, these are sort of rules of thumb for this yeah. purpose of this but, podcast. But I think you're right. But I think in general, if you become aware of a uh, an asserted claim for a loss contingency post-balance sheet date, well, you'll have a claim date, but presumably it, be, it was because the event that gave rise to that claim actually occurred before the balance sheet date, and so you would have to evaluate that claim as of the balance sheet date in the context of whether you needed an accrual as of the balance sheet date. So Pat, that's helpful. I know one question I got, used to get a lot from clients is um, how insurance recoveries factor into the whole model. And you, you referenced self-insurance early in our conversation, and I think there's often cases where you're insured, maybe there's portion self-insurance, et cetera. And so how does that insurance coverage interact with our accounting under FAS5? Yeah, so I think the important thing to remember is you still have the obligation as the entity for the loss or whatever damage you may have caused. The fact that you have insurance coverage for that just means that you have a means of financial recovery to the extent you sustain the loss, but it's still your loss. So for that potential loss or that contingency, you still have to go through all the things we talked about, assessing whether it's probable, estimating the loss, accruing it. Then you can consider, okay, well, I have insurance for that risk. Do I have the potential for recovery under that insurance policy? And if you conclude that you do, and the insurance policy is in force, you know, that's a claim that would be covered and there's no dispute around it, then you can accrue or anticipate that insurance recovery at the same time you accrue the loss, obviously with the parameters of the policy. Importantly, though, that's a receivable from the insurance company you have a loss accrual for the obligation you may have to pay a third party for the loss. And this is even true if the insurance company comes in and says, well, we're going to handle your defense. I mean, it's still your liability. So bottom line is the insurance recovery gets recorded gross. The loss accrual gets recorded gross. You can't offset those two. So I think that would be the most important takeaway is a sort of independent accounting. It's related, but independent accounting for the insurance. So you can't bypass accrual disclosure and your own assessment by saying, oh, I have insurance, I'm done. Exactly. Okay. Pat, very helpful discussion today. Thank you. And for our listeners, definitely encourage you, if you have questions in this area, to check out Chapter 23 of the Financial Statement Presentation Guide. So Pat, thanks for joining me. Thank you, Heather. Please join me here again next week when I welcome back Andreas Ohl, a PwC National Office partner who specializes in transactions and valuations. Andreas and I will also be joined by Chad Morrissey, a principal in PwC's deals practice. Chad and Andreas will be discussing the FASB's recently issued invitation to comment on identifiable intangible assets and the subsequent accounting for goodwill. I know that Andreas is very passionate about this project, and I'm expecting that they'll give us a lot to think about. To make sure you never miss an episode, subscribe to our podcast series wherever you find your content. And we'd love to hear from you, so please leave us a review. For PwC, I'm Heather Horn. Thanks for tuning in. This podcast is brought to you by PwC All Rights Reserved. 
PwC refers to the U.S. member firm or one of its subsidiaries or affiliates, and may sometimes refer to the PwC network. Each member firm is a separate legal entity. Please see www.pwc.com structure for further details. This podcast is for general information purposes only and should not be used as a substitute for consultation with professional advisors.